0: and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message.
1: I'd like to share with you from the Word of God today... Uh, quite a bit of scripture. Not uh, the the scriptures that I want to share with you are little longer passages. They're longer, and if you read this week's parasha, this week's Torah portion that's commonly read in the Jewish world, in the Messianic Jewish world, then you realize, as I did, as I read it and studied it, I actually outlined this particular portion. It's so significant. Some of the events that happened in this parasha. Um. For example, in just a moment, we'll speak about Exodus chapter 32. We won't have an opportunity to read all of Exodus 32, but we'll read part of it. And you'll see as we read that, that segment that it's probably a story, a narrative that you're familiar with. But there were many passages in this week's parasha that were quite significant, including a, a segment on the Shabbat that we recite as part of the liturgy and then also other events that occurred that if you saw the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments movie, Seth, Cecil B. DeMille, whoever the, the uh, director was, tried so hard to, 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 to show us what, what these events were like, and of course, as hard as he tried, he fell flat on his face because they're indescribable. The giving of the Torah on Har Horeb, on Mount Sinai, on Mount Horeb. The, the golden calf incident. And all that happened surrounding that. It was very difficult to display that or, or show that, express that in a movie. So what I'd like to do is read a segment on that from Exodus chapter 32, Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus chapter 32, and trust that we're so familiar with this narrative, with this story, that we'll be able to fill in some of the blanks, and that we'll use scripture to fill in those blanks, not necessarily the Ten Commandments movie, but we'll use scripture to fill in the blanks. So Exodus chapter 32, beginning with verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aharon, to Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the gold earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which are in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, Aaron built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Today is a feast to Adonai, to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next morning, the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord... Remember Abraham, Yitzhak, and Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Obviously, this passage is just the beginning segment. The rest of the story, the narrative is in the rest of Sefer Shemot, the books of Exodus chapter 32. And after reading this passage, for I don't know how many times I've read this passage, and you could say the same thing, many of you, you've read this passage over and over again. And, and there's probably some questions and thoughts have come to your mind as you read this passage. I know one of them came to my mind again as it does each time I read this passage. And the thought is something like this. I, I read this again and I thought, how could they have done such a thing? An Ego Zahav, a golden calf? How could they have done such a thing? I mean, I just wondered how could they have done it. And think about it, how could they have done it? After all, God's power had been remarkably displayed not too many weeks prior. Remarkably displayed as he delivered them out of Eretz Mitzrayim, the land of Egypt. And they received his faithful provision. And they were receiving manna at that time, the manna, at that time daily. And they saw his control over the elements of the earth. I mean, think about it. They crossed the Yam the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, on dry ground because an east wind came and dried up the dirt underneath their feet. And meanwhile, when the Egyptians came, they also saw that the the walls came in, the walls of order came and crushed them and destroyed the whole army of Pharaoh and the chariots and the horsemen. They'd seen these things. They were eyewitnesses. I'm sure a few had probably already passed away, but they were eyewitnesses to such a, a marvelous and remarkable display of divine power. And they had pondered the sovereignty of God, how God had heard their cries and sent Moshe, Moses, to them, who they initially didn't receive very well. But eventually they realized that God had sovereignly raised up Moshe and Aharon, Moses and Aaron, to lead them forward out of the land of slavery even to this day in our Passover seders, we say this phrase, Abedim le leparo b'mitzrayim. We were once slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. They came to recognize God had actually called Moses and Aaron. And they came to realize how near God was to them. I mean manna each day. Out there in the desert was supplied to them. And the list goes on and on of all they had seen, the miraculous display of power. I mean, the Lord had told them, to ask the Egyptians for their jewelry. And just think about the Egyptians gave their jewelry to them, their precious jewelry. They gave it to them. And the Egyptians relinquished that jewelry And it was probably some of that very jewelry that became fashioned into a golden calf. And isn't it like humanity to misuse the provision of God for fleshly things? How could they have done such a thing? A golden calf? And if you're like me, that question is something that you've thought about many times. And you may have even wondered, how can you as an individual relate to this whole scenario? I mean, a golden calf is way out there, isn't it? Of course, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of having these things written for our instruction. We have those in our scripture. I hope you're a people of the scripture, that you're a person that you read the scripture regularly, daily, and spend time in the word of God so that these very things are no longer hidden to you. They become revealed to you, exposed to you. They become part of your thinking. And there are many reasons why that's important, but one reason is so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That tells us what I just said to you that these things were written. Why? For our instruction on whom, upon whom the end of the age has come. But a golden calf. Pretty extreme. Took some work to do that. It wasn't in a minute. It took some work. They had to gather and collect the materials. And all that says says Aaron fashioned it with his tools. And we know a whole night passed because it was the next day in the morning that they came and offered sacrifices. And an altar was built. All this involved time. Was there no relenting? Was there no repenting? Was there no, hey, I can't go this direction? And we are, thankfully, we know that not all Bnei, not all the children of Israel followed the course of the golden calf. And not all the children of Israel would follow Korak later on. And not all the children of Israel would be complaining all the time, as scripture continually mentions. The Bible tells us that although Israel was taken out of Egypt... Egypt was still lodged in their hearts and in their minds. Their hearts were given over to fleshly pursuits. It shows up more and more as you read. As we go forward in the Parashayot and the Torah portions, more and more we'll see that. In fact, they will bring up remembrances of Egypt as a way to criticize and to complain. Their minds were entrenched in Egypt and its ways. Their hearts, their minds, so many, and their desires. Their desires often hinged upon remembrances of Egypt and life in Egypt, which by the way was not so rosy, it was not so great of a deem hyena. We were slaves to Pharaoh. And somehow there was a bit of selective memory. You'll see it as we read through the portions. You're probably aware of it, where they just seem to remember the foodstuffs that they had. But they don't say, and you don't find it afterwards, they don't seem to remember that the straw was taken away from them so that when they made the bricks, that their work was made even harder. They somehow didn't seem to remember that as well. But they remembered the leeks, They remembered the garlic. They remembered the fish. And I know I'm making you hungry. I'm making me hungry by these things. But they remember those things. Acts chapter 7 tells us this. This is the word, the last, the final message, let me put it this way, of Stephen. The martyr Stephen. Who was murdered at the... Lion's Gate in Jerusalem, we're told. And this is part of his message. I encourage you to get a chance to read all of Exodus 32 and all of Acts chapter 7. And Stephen, here's part of what he says. He says, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Verse 37 of Acts chapter 7. This is that Moshe who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And then there's this phrase. It says, Stephen relates to them, and he says to them, and in their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt? We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol. And notice, please, this next phrase, as Stephen characterizes it, nearly 2,000 years ago at the lion's gate at Jerusalem. And he says, and they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. They turned back to Egypt in their hearts and they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Stephen pointed out that they offered sacrifices to the idol and that they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. What was the source of their rejoicing? We could put it, if we characterize it as a flesh-oriented religiosity. I mean, after all, they built built an idol, they crafted an idol, and they offered sacrifices to that idol. An altar was built before that idol, and sacrifices offered up. Such a descriptive of flesh-oriented religious service. The works of our own hands, the works of our own flesh with a heart turned back to Egypt. Furthermore, it's documented that calf worship, and I'm not talking about this up here on your leg. (laughs) That calf worship reminds me of a joke that was told to me out at the bagel room. I'm not going to repeat it, but I'll tell you, if you miss the bagels in the morning, there's some action out there. Beyond the bagels, you may get some updates on news. You may get the latest joke, which I received it was kind of funny, but I'm not going to repeat it. And I know you will come to me afterward and say, "Could you please tell us that joke?" <laughs> but it's documented that calf worship was a part of the listen to this, please, the religious expression of nearly every Semitic people. Calf worship. In fact, basically all the Semitic people had some form of calf worship. With that in mind, when you think about it, and I'll express a little more about this, building an aisle that looked like a calf was not that far out. It was far out wrong. It was far out idolatry, but it wasn't that far out. For example, the Babylonians... The Babylonians looked upon the bull as the symbol of their greatest gods. It was the bull that symbolized their strongest gods, the bull. Among the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the bull was the symbol of the proverbial granddaddy of them all, Baal. What was Baal's symbol? The bull, the Canaanites and other semitic peoples and those in the near east around where israel is today during the time the very time of the exodus that we're reading about the bull was in some way connected in their thinking it was connected to reproductive processes Not only of animals, but of plants. The bull was a symbol of virility. The bull was a symbol of reproduction. The bull was a symbol of abundance. And not to be outdone, the Egyptians. The Egyptians as the people from whom the Jewish people were delivered... And among whom the Jewish people had previously lived the Egyptians they really had a strong view of bulls. They viewed the bull as the symbol of strength, the symbol of vigor and the symbol of endurance and all three of those things. Strength, vigor and endurance were those type of attributes would be necessary to weather the desert. And remember, as we read the narrative of the Egel the golden calf, the children of Israel are just embarking on a desert wandering where they knew in their flesh they knew that they would need strength to endure, they would need vigor, they would need perseverance and endurance to get through this. And from the Egyptian mindset, the symbol of that was the bull. And the bull was considered by the Egyptians as the cohort of the greatest god of all the Egyptians, the sun god. Well, I like to call him Ra. <laughs> Ra. Sometimes you'll see his name, capital R A. Some theological traduces have a capital R-E, but I like the word Ra for the Egyptian god. Why do I like the word, the name Ra for the Egyptian god? Because it means bad or evil in Hebrew. So he was Ra as far as I'm concerned. He was bad or evil. And that was the name of their ultimate god, the sun god. And the cohort of this ultimate god, Ra... Was a bull. So it makes great spiritual sense that the Lord quickly in the wilderness wandering, the Lord Lord quickly showed the Israelites that his abiding presence was with them. And we read in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. They could travel in the daytime or the nighttime. But notice again, let me emphasize this, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this, but it says the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. By day and by night in a pillar of fire. Verse 22 of Exodus chapter 13 continues and says, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. I suggest to you there's much more to this than we even imagine. By means of the cloud by day, where the sun dominates... The Lord, in a sense, gave a picture of him overpowering Ra, the sun god. His cloud just got rid of that sun god, overpowered him, took preeminence over him. The sun, as powerful as it is in a desert situation, I'd been to Egypt in June and it's hot. But the cloud did away with that sun God. And what about the pillar of fire by night? Well, there was also a moon god. And the pillar of fire did away with the moon god. So the cloud did away with their, all their preconceptions about Ra, the sun god, being preeminent, and God's cloud just wipes that out. And then their other thinking about the moon god being dominant. The pillar of fire wipes that out. The moon God's name was Allah. The God of Israel superior to all the gods of men. All the false gods of men. He's the true, the living God. He's El-Chai, the living God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools." And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And hence, we go back to the golden calf with its four legs. This animal that was so symbolic in all the cultures around Israel. But there was another factor that I think we should consider here about the golden calf. And the factor is this, did Aaron make the calf or did it just pop out of the fire? No Aaron's explanation. I mean, we have his words, we have some of his thinking that's written in the Torah. And say for Shemot, the book of Exodus chapter 32 verse 21, says, "And Moses said there, this is after Moses comes down. After God says, "Go down to your people down there, your people down there." And Moses said to Aaron, "He comes down, and Moses says to his brother Aaron, "What did this people do to you?" that you have brought so great a sin upon them. And man, this was a great sin. It's still right now to this day when we think of the golden calf, one descriptive we can use is it is a great sin. It was a great sin. The idolatry that that represented in the face of the very power of God that had just been happening was a great contrast And there were some that went the way of the golden calf. And there are some in our generation that choose the way of the golden calf over the ways of the true living God. What did this people do to you, Aaron, that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, now this is his explanation. The Torah records his words. His words. Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. (laughs) He knew his brother. He knew Moses' temperament. When you family members tend to know a little bit about other family members, am I am I am I correct about that? Is that true? You kind of learn about your family members as you grow up. He knew that Moses had a tendency to react. And can I say it this way to get a little bit upset? Well, let me say it in reality. To get quite upset. Angry. The first thing Aaron says when he's confronted by Moses after Moses comes down from Har Sinai, from Mount Sinai, he says to him, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. And then the very next statement is, Moses, you know the people. That is a truism, isn't it? By this time, Moses had got to know his people very well. You know the people that they are set on evil. By the way, that does resonate with what God had said to Moses when he revealed to Moses what was happening. He called them a stiff-necked people. Those that were rebelling. You know the people that they are set on evil, verse 23 of Exodus 32. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. That was true, by the way. They really didn't know. And I, Aaron, I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. And this calf came out. I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. (laughs) Sounds a little like popcorn, huh? Throw a little popcorn on the fire, and these palomitos de maiz, these corn things come out. Well, truth be told, like all people in leadership positions, no exceptions, Aaron's feet were made of clay when you think about it. That is, he was a human being that had, you know, weakness. He was fraught with weaknesses. He was a human being. And like all leaders, if leaders are not yielded to the Lord leaders like anyone else are liable to make some bad decisions and then make excuses as to why. But the text states clearly, if you look at Exodus chapter 235, the last verse of the text answers the question, did it just pop out of the fire, or was Aaron involved in the whole Meshugas of it? In Exodus chapter 32, verse 35 says, So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf, asher asah aharon. The Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron made. The last phrase of chapter 32 of Exodus is a comment that says, this is the calf that Aaron made. Well, there's abundant proof that he did actually make it. There's a lot of rabbinical discussion as saying, no, he really didn't, it just popped out. So when the golden calf was finished, after it was fashioned by Aaron, which is also expressed that there were tools used on it, and perhaps others that he enlisted... To help him do this task. We read in Exodus chapter 32 verse 5. It says Aaron built an altar before. That's quite clear. How many agree that's pretty clear? Aaron built an altar before. There's not a lot of wiggle room on that one. Aaron built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. How many think that's pretty clear? Aaron made a proclamation. And he said tomorrow is a feast to... And then the tetragrammaton is used. The Shema Mifarash, the four-letter name, yod he vav of God. Tomorrow is a feast to Adonai. He uses the holy name of God there. That four-letter holy name of God, yod he vav So clearly this incident of the golden calf, the Egel HaZahav, was a joint effort with some of the people and Aaron. Not all the people were involved, some of them. Is it correct to say that all the Israelites were stiff-necked people? No, it was not correct. It is not correct. There were some who feared God even then at the Golden Calf incident. Is it correct to say that all the, all the Israelites were rebellious at the time of Korach? no. The vast majority weren't. There was a large group that followed Korah in his rebellion, but most didn't. Now, I want to leave you with five thoughts here. And I hope you'll be inspired to reread Exodus chapter 32, because in Israel's history, and we can argue in human history, the incident of the golden calf stands out among a couple of other incidents. And to me, the contrast is so great. Here, Moses is at Mount Sinai receiving a ser Debrot the ten commands. And meanwhile, what's going on on the ground? The golden calf. And this contrast is great. This contrast is great. And it almost lines up for our own lives. Which way will we choose in our lives? Will we choose to go the way of the Lord Moses was up on Sinai on Mount Sinai, receiving the Lord's instructions, his Torah. Meanwhile, on the ground, Aaron was following the crowd. Our lives, we are called to follow the Lord, and that the way of deliverance salvation is narrow. And the way of destruction is wide and many go that way. We're called to be a people of distinction where in our circumstances we face in life, we choose to serve the Lord. Are we always going to get it right? Aaron didn't always get it right. And by the way, can I say this? I'll say it hushed. Moses didn't always get it right either. You remember he wasn't allowed to enter into the land of promise because he did not Treat the Lord as holy in front of the people. So five thoughts to think about. Conclusion number one, here it is. Idolatry is a type of falsehood. Anytime idolatry is involved, there is a missing of truth. It is the type of falsehood. And any falsehood, if followed, will contribute to chaos in a person's life. Confusion, chaos, however you want to describe it. So, idolatry is a type of falsehood. And any falsehood will contribute to chaos in a person's life. Why? Well, because the person has strayed from truth and is continually vulnerable to the effects of falsehoods. I love what Yeshua said in Yochanan in John chapter 8, verse 32. This is profound, and please don't close your ears to this. You've probably heard it many times, but think about this. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What's important in our lives as Kalmedim, as disciples, followers of the Lord, is that we walk in the truth, God's truth, true truth, and that we follow him And I'm really convinced, actually, that the only way to real inner and eternal freedom, inner freedom, peace, and eternal freedom, a freedom that lasts through eternity, because whom the Son sets free is actually free. Whom Yeshua sets free is free. I know when I came to know the Lord, I felt this incredible release in my life. How many of you can say the same thing? There's something happened deep inside of me. Did I anticipate it? No. Did it happen? Yes. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. A personal daily relationship with our Messiah is critical for us. In this world full of falsehoods and all kinds of other statements like fake news, and you just wonder what's real and what's not real nowadays, that which is filling the wave Airwaves out there, how much of it's true, how much of it's false. It's difficult sometimes to discern. But the Lord's truth endures forever and it will make you free. Conclusion number two, all leaders have feet of clay. Now I believe we should honor and support those that are in positions of leadership. Support them, honor them. But please hear this. We should never place them on a pedestal. Never. We should honor, respect, and support. Recognize calling. And it is amazing over the years to see people that maybe you or I might not have called to do something that God did call. You know, after the golden calf incident, that he's still, God is still going to use Aaron. <laughs> Even after Moshe smote the rock in disobedience to the Lord, that Moshe still had ministry time after that, all the way to the very edge of the promised land where he got to look out but not enter in. So please be supportive of leaders, but they do have feet of play, and don't ever place them on a pedestal. You'll be disappointed. There are a lot of passages that speak of this, but let me suggest this one from the book of Messianic Jews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Notice how it begins. Remember. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. And then in the very next verse, the juxtapositioning of these two verses, I think is supremely powerful. Verse 8, verse 7 says, Remember those who have uh, rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, faith to follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Then verse 8 immediately segues to this statement Messiah issue is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Hebrews 13, 7, the first verse that I read, human leaders with their shortcomings and areas needing growth. Are set in contrast to who? To Yeshua. (laughs) Yeshua, who is blameless, the same yesterday and forever, who is completely blameless in all that he says and does. Yeshua. Leaders must look to Yeshua, even as all of us must look to Yeshua, but we should never place leaders on a pedestal. Conclusion number three. Don't be deceived into thinking you could never fall prey to a golden calf. Let me repeat that. Don't be deceived into thinking you could never fall prey to a golden calf. There's a well-known statement that's found in the Berit Hadashah in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, and you may recognize this statement. It says this, Therefore, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, this statement serves as a warning, but notice the context of this statement is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll begin with verse 6. Now, these things became our examples as it references back to what happened with Israel in the wilderness, among other things. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, mentioned in this week's parashah. Verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Messiah as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain. Is that really in there, by the way? Anybody have a complaint about that being in there? nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now all these things happened to them as what? Examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And then it's in that context that the verse I initially read comes. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Conclusion number four. Idolatry involves syncretism. Syncretism is the fusion of differing systems of belief. It was Aaron, who is the high priest who proclaimed when the golden calf was completed that they were going to celebrate a feast to Adonai. So there the golden calf is being mixed with a feast to Adonai. That's quite a jump, isn't it? To have in front of you a golden calf and then say, well, this is going to be a feast to the Lord, Adonai. The truth is Adonai has nothing in common with idolatry, nothing. There's no common ground there. And we shouldn't have anything to do with idolatry either. It should be completely out of our life. And please take a look at your own life. We all need to do this and see what's happening in that realm. And that will bring me to the last conclusion. Conclusion number five. And we'll finish with this. Idolatry comes in many different forms. All forms of idolatry are dangerous. If we're to define, at least for our purposes today, what is idolatry or what an idol is, an idol is anything, anyone, or any place we put in front of God in our life. That we put before God, anything, anyone, any place that we put before God in our life. There's an argument that can be made that that's some type of idolatry. And the scripture tells us that in every part of our life, we should honor him first. First fruits, first in the morning, you know, just the first type of relationship with him, not a second, third, or last. It's very important. And I want to leave you with this passage from First Yohanan chapter 5. Now I went through all the endings of the New Covenant books. And I thought, how do these books end? Because the first word and the last word are very important in communication. But this, this one ended differently than every other book in the New Covenant. Because this one ended with a command. Most of the Pauline epistles, the writings of Paul end with something like: Grace be unto you, peace be unto you. And I actually listed every single ending. And then I looked at the whole body of the endings, and then which one jumped out at me? It was this one, how this one ends. The very last words of what I was looking at. The last words of the book. What was the last statement in the book? And the last statement in this book was unique because it was a statement with a mitzvah attached, with a command attached. 1 John chapter 5 verse 20 gives us the context. We know that the son of God has come. The son of God refers to Yeshua the Messiah. That Yeshua the Messiah has come and he has given us an understanding. An understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Messiah Yeshua. This is the true God and eternal life. And here's how this book ends. Little children, kind of a delicate statement, little children. It doesn't end with, you rebel rousers You idolaters. No, it ends with little children, characteristic of first Yohanan. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. My friends, that's a word for us here at Rosh Pina. My heart's prayer is that we will keep the Lord first, and that we will do it indeed, in heart, in action. And as we put Him first, we can trust Him to guide us and direct us. Because if we acknowledge Him in all our ways, the promise in Proverbs chapter three is that he will direct our paths. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you first of all that you gave us a record of what happened in your dealings not only with Israel but with that whole world at that time. Thank you that you left these records so that we might learn that they were written by your decree for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Lord, I pray for each of us here as individuals that we would be serious before you about our relationship with you. We would walk in truth before you. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for each of our lives, regardless of our struggles, Regardless of how much clay our feet are made of, your grace is sufficient. And in fact, you told us in your word that your power is perfected in weakness. That as we are weak in ourselves, we can be strong in you. That as we allow you to remove from us all our fleshly ways and attitudes, that you would take Egypt out of our hearts so that you, O Messiah, can be enthroned in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would use us, that your grace, your sufficient grace, even though we have made many errors in our lives, in word and deed and actions, Lord, thank you, that you are El-Chai, the living God. You are El, the God who's with us. I pray, Lord, for each individual here, that you would grace each individual's life with your truth, with your love, that we would cast aside our fleshly endeavors and be led of your Holy Spirit. Your word says, for as many as are led by your spirit, these are the children of God. Lord, thank you for each person here. Please bless each household, each family, each individual represented. And as for this household, Lord, Rosh Pina, we proclaim that you are the Lord here. In Yeshua's name, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs and Bible studies on Tuesday nights for more information please visit our website www.roshpinah.org that's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G you can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org thank you for spending time in the Word with us today Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua